Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, February 1st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we talk Megar Evers, Mississippi, and Black History Month. Then, advocates rally in support of an anti-hate crime bill. And the stubborn Omicron variant of COVID-19 is slowly on the decline. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Happy Black History Month. All month long here on Mississippi Edition, we'll be sharing conversations that explore the past, present, and future of black identity in Mississippi and throughout the U.S. Today, we're joined by Kena Graham. She's part of the National Park Service, and she's currently serving as superintendent of the Megger and Murley Evers Home National Monument in Jackson. Megger Evers was born in 1925 in Decatur, Mississippi, and at an early age, his parents taught him about um, civil rights. He and his his brother and his siblings about how important it was and how they were just as equal to anybody else. And so at an early age, he was exposed to that violence when one of his father's best friends was lynched and his body laid out in the street for a few days so that everybody could get the message. And that was an imprint on him. Uh, When he was 17 years old, he enlisted in the Army, and so he served over in the European Theater, Normandy, D-Day, all of that. When he got back, he went to Alcorn State University on the GI Bill, and he majored in business administration. And he was always a, a reader, a studious person, kind of an introvert but always passionate about his beliefs. And so he was on the track team. He was on the football team. He was class president, did so much stuff. And then there he met Merle Evers, Merle Beasley. It was love at first sight for the both of them. And he stayed in Mississippi and worked for the NAACP mm-hmm. to encourage people to vote. Yes, he did. And part of this, though, was his business background. So he had a very practical approach to civil rights that speak to me and many people that, you know, they all pay taxes. So therefore, they should have equal and equitable rights. 
So there should be no impediment to that whatsoever. So he truly focused on that. And when he and Merle worked in Mount Bayou, um, he was a part of business organizations up there first and boycotted businesses like uh, gas stations that would not allow African-Americans to use the same facilities as uh, their white patrons. But voting was very huge, as well as education. Those were the two big ones for him. And so he stayed, like I mentioned, in Jackson and became well-known across the state. And it made him a a target. Yeah, well, he started to get well-known when he was in Mount Bayou. And so he investigated the death of Reverend George Lee first. And then we know about Emmett Till. And so all of his work doing that, the NAACP started their first office in Jackson and, you know, tapped him to come down to Jackson's. And that's what he and Miss Murley did. They moved their family down here and he wanted to stay in Mississippi. Miss Murley asked him why, because she wanted to leave. And he always talked about the potential of Mississippi and even the natural beauty because he was a, he was a country boy at heart. He loved the, 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 the trees and the rivers and, you know, all of that because he was a hunter and a fisherman as well. Ultimately, he was assassinated in front of his home in 1963. Yes, yes, he was. And there were several attempts on his life beforehand. Um, People don't know that the uh, month, May, before, you know, he was assassinated in June, someone threw a Molotov cocktail in his carport. Miss Murley put it out, and she was pregnant at the time. Looking back at all of that, and then talking about Black History Month, do you think at this point in this time that it's really appreciated in America what has happened to Black Americans and what they have done in civil rights in all areas of endeavor? No, and I think... For me, it's because we forget as citizens that democracy is participatory, and that means that we always have to be engaged. And just because the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act were passed doesn't mean that everything is okay. You must always stay vigilant. And somehow we have it in our heads that, you know, once a law is passed, that's all we have to do, and we can lay it to bed. Megar Evers and Miss Murley, she's alive to this day, understand this is something that you have to keep at every day day because we have a tendency as humans in human history to go back to authoritarian uh, monarchs, those types of things. And so democracies don't last long in human history. So you always have to be vigilant. Do you think because we had a black president that white America and black America, well, everyone felt that, gee, we're beyond race now? Yes, I do. I do. I mean, because that's the national, ultimate national stage, right? Uh, and then we're so-called leaders of the, the free world. And so, you know, we have a black president of the leader of the free world. So everything is okay. But again, everything, you have to be vigilant every day to uphold these rights. Even when you think they're good, even when it is good, you still have to be vigilant. And what we find, or I've noticed, is that You have your traditional African-Americans that are spotlighted, Martin Luther King, uh, Rosa Parks, Muhammad Ali, and it doesn't go to the length and breadth, but could it really go to the length and breadth of all of the contributions that African-Americans have made? And would people even listen? I think that 
if they start to look at their own communities, what they will find, and this is what I tell everyone, there was no one civil rights leader. Every county, every place had their own movement going. Even in Mississippi, you know, Megar Evers was well known in Mississippi. He was one of many in Mississippi. King was one of many in Alabama as well as Georgia. And so when you start to look more at your own community, you start to see what you are doing and you become more interested in how what was going on in your own small community contributed to the national movement. Do you think that Black History Month makes a difference in this day and age with the polarization in the country? The month? No. Focusing on the year and the years after that, yes. And that was the intent anyway, that the month would be, or the day actually in February, then moving on to a month would be a jumpstart into incorporating African-American history in all of our history of the nation. It's not just separate from anything else. You know, he's not separate from JFK. (laughs) All of that is together. How do you see getting the nation to appreciate the month? Again, I think when you start to look at how it relates to you and how this is all incorporated and telling those stories in a more inclusive manner, again, I can tell you the story of JFK. And in that story of JFK is MLK, is Megar Evers, is Merle Evers, Jackie Robinson and all of that, not just Massachusetts and him dealing with the you know white senators and Congress people. All of that is intertwined. And there are a lot of white people that participated in the civil rights movement oh, sure. and in the Underground Railroad mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. What can we do more to recognize all of the contributions of people who saw injustice and wanted to right the wrongs. I think Megger Merle Ever story is so perfect for that because they knew the Lees and the Lees, you know, Big Apple Inn, and they were a mixed family of, you know, Hispanic and Filipino as well as. African. And that was a restaurant. A restaurant, yeah, and it's still in existence on Ferris Street. And his first office was above there. He worked with Ed King, who is a white minister and still alive. So again, you you talk about these people who were involved in their lives that felt just as passionate about equal rights and justice as they did. Downstairs in the museum, you'll see the the mugshots of the Freedom Riders, and you'll see white faces, Latino faces, Asian faces. It's, you know, that they're very much committed to this as well. Now we're looking at the issue of critical race theory, which Mm -hmm. has become politicized across the country. How do we get beyond this? Because everyone's going to shut down. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And stay in their own little tribe. Mm-hmm. So I am in the field of public history. And so what I say to people that my first job was at the Robert E. Lee Memorial. And when people would come to me and they would say, you know, and Robert E. Lee is a Confederate general. And so they would, you know, we would talk about the causes of the Civil War. And they would say, no, it's about states rights, not about slavery. And then we would read the, the um, primary documents That's what the Confederacy said. And we just let them know that your reaction is about you. It's not about Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee did what he did. And we have to talk about it. Your reaction to it is about you, not about him. And people's reactions about us teaching black history is not about Megar Evers. That's about you. So I tell people, look within yourself and why do you 
feel uncomfortable because these people did their acts. Ross Barnett did what he did. And he felt proud of it. What did he do? Uh, he paid, he supported the sovereignty commission and the white citizens councils that, and you know, would give tips about where people like Megar Evers, Aaron Henry, Fannie Lou Hamer were. That's what he did. He gave money to these organizations so they could write down their, um, you know, black leaders and anybody who supported them, their license plates, and then, you know, turn that information over to their jobs so that black people would lose their jobs. Anybody supporting the civil rights movement. They did what they did. They were proud at the time. Now that we're talking about it, just because the nation has changed, hopefully, doesn't mean that their actions change from history. Have you had occasion to talk to people of other races who admit it? Yeah, it makes me uncomfortable, and I really don't want to go there. I say to them, you have an eight-year-old Rena Evers who saw her father lose her his life. She looked at her father losing her. How uncomfortable and horrific it was for her to actually experience it. So if an eight-year-old had to experience that, me listening to it and feeling uncomfortable, it's not nearly as bad as her actually experiencing that. Nearly not as bad as Megar Evers losing his life, Ms. Murley losing her husband and her partner. So the experience outweighs me being uncomfortable or any of us being uncomfortable listening to it. Kina Graham is superintendent of the Megar and Murley Evers Home National Monument. Coming up, advocates rally in support of an anti-hate crime bill. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Advocates gathered outside Mississippi's Capitol building yesterday in support of an anti-hate crime legislation bill. Legislation and bill, of course, the same thing. MPB's Kobe Vance was there. He spoke with Rob Hill, who's state director of the Human Rights Campaign. We're here in support of the effort to pass HB 1467, which is a comprehensive hate crime bill. It would add disability, sexual orientation, and gender identity to our current state law and bring us in line with federal law, the Matthew Shepard James Byrd Act. What would that allow Mississippians to do in, in terms of you know state to be able to pursue justice in the criminal system? Yeah, uh, this would allow local prosecutors and local investigators, it would give them the tools to be able to investigate a crime and prosecute it that evidence, uh, evidence suggests is a bias motivator or hate crime. This would not necessarily create a new crime in and of itself, but add, be able to add to sentencing. You know, yeah. Can you describe what that would yeah, look like? It would add uh, enhanced penalty. Uh, right now, if somebody's targeted in Mississippi because of their religion or their race, and, and there's ev- evidence to suggest that it was a bias-motivated crime, you can also seek an enhanced uh, penalty. Um, and, and this, if a person in the LGBTQ plus community or a person in the who is, is who is disabled is targeted and evidence suggests that it is a, a hate crime, then there would be enhanced penalty for those cases. 
what is the importance of having these laws to protect you know LGBTQ or uh, people with disabilities in the state? Well, you know, nobody should ever be targeted because of who they are or, or who they love. And so, you know, this would send the message that the Mississippi values everybody uh, in, in the state especially LGBTQ plus people who are uh, who don't have the same rights and laws as everybody else to, to protect them in our, in our state. Uh, so this would say that that everybody's valuable, especially LGBTQ plus folks and folks with disabilities and, and make them feel safer. Are there surrounding states that have already pursued this kind of law? Yeah, there are several southern states that have that have um, in, that have added sexual orientation, um, and then uh, many other states throughout the country have added uh, gender identity as well. And you said this would bring us in line with federal law. You know, what does it mean to have that local protection? This would bring us in law. That, yeah, 2009, a bipartisan bill was passed in, in Congress, and it, uh, it it's called the Matthew Shepard James Byrd Act, um, and it was you know signed into law by President Obama. Uh, this would um, this would allow local folks. This would we wouldn't have to wait on the FBI to get involved if we suspect a crime is bias motivated or a hate crime. This would give local law enforcement all the tools they need to investigate and prosecute. What do you think this could mean for LGBTQ people around the state or people with disabilities on our, in a real-life basis? You know, do you think this would have immediate impacts in their lives? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I say that when we are doing things like this, when we're passing these kind of laws, it, it sends the message that, that everybody's important, everybody's valuable. I even think about the youth who's struggling with coming to terms with their, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, and, and something like this can really save a life when, when a legislature sends a positive message um, that Mississippi welcomes and values everyone. Do you think this is going to be able to pass the legislature this year? I hope so. We're doing everything we can to get it passed. Is there anything else you'd like to share with Mississippians um, about this bill or other efforts y'all are doing right now to try to, you know, protect LGBTQ plus people, people with disabilities, sex, gender, anything? Yeah, we're we have, join us in the effort. We're working across the state to pass um, local laws to uh, ordinances to protect people, uh, to give them. Uh, non-discrimination protections in the, all, all around the state. Uh, this is just one of the things that, that we're doing. But please contact your legislator, contact uh, Chairman Nick Bain and ask him to bring this bill out and work with us locally to pass local uh, non-discrimination uh, ordinances. Rob Hill leads the human rights campaign in Mississippi. Today is a deadline day for all bills that don't pass out of committees. By the final gavel, they'll be dead. Coming up, the stubborn Omicron variant of COVID-19 is slowly on the decline. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Omicron variant of COVID-19 isn't going away quietly. Over the weekend, the State Department of Health recorded almost 10,000 new infections. That's down from the height of the Omicron spike, but still higher than at almost any other point during the pandemic. Last week, a Mississippi child under the age of 18 died of the virus, putting the state's total number of minor COVID deaths at 10. Dr. Jerry Weiland is president of the State Medical Association and a pediatrician in Vicksburg. She speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. What's going on with Omicron is that it's so much more infectious than the last 
variant, which was Delta, and we have large numbers, which again is straining the health system. What's great, well, the only good news there is that it doesn't seem to be quite as deadly as Delta was. We're having admissions. We're, ha- we're having people get sick. We still are having a lot of people sick who didn't get vaccinated. And of course, as a pediatrician, I'm concerned because a lot of the children that are being affected are too young to be vaccinated or haven't been vaccinated. You can now be, children can be vaccinated ages five and above. Five to 11, they receive a third of the dose of the Pfizer that you get 12 and above. But a lot of parents aren't really taking advantage of that yet. Back in mid-December, the Children's Hospital, there were zero admissions from COVID, zero. The end of December, when Omicron started to surge, it now runs a census of about 15 to 20 a day with two or three children on a ventilator since the end of December. And that's just too much. That's, that's more than we need. So it's still a problem. We still need to try to have people vaccinate. I mean, the, you know, one of the positives is with all the corona that we've had for the past couple of years, a lot of people have some natural immunity. But the studies still show that even with natural immunity, you have better chances of avoiding hospitalization and severe health, health issues if you take a vaccine also. Do you think we're near the end of the surge? This one. <laughs> one of the problems with Delta, it, and again, I don't like to, to place blame, but we had it at the end of, of 2020 when the vaccine became available, um, those people who felt more vulnerable, older folks, people with underlying health issues, went and got vaccinated. And then in the spring of 21, the numbers just really dropped down. It was kind of exciting. It looked like we might turn a corner, and then Delta happened. And it was mostly a disease of the non-vaccinated, but it was deadly. It was a strain on our health system. There were young people dying from this. There were people because they did not choose to be vaccinated. Um, so, you know, we talk about turning the corner. What you have to hope is that the, that the next variant, and there's going to be a next variant, that it's not like Delta and that people will get vaccinated and try to, to keep themselves healthy. What do you think is going to be the importance of booster doses going forward? Well, you know, people are tired of getting shots. They're tired of be. They're tired of getting shots. They're tired of talking about Corona. But if the studies we do say that you're going to be better off with a booster, take a booster. I'll take one now. I'll take one in six months because I'm out there in the front lines, and I don't want it. And I don't want to. I don't want to give it to anybody in my family. Are you hoping to be able to see more nurses in the state uh, using federal funds to try to, or using state funds to try to, you know? secure the state's health care system as it's been so under strain these past two years? Uh, we hope that, that the, the monies can be used to help our hospitals, our nurses, everything. I mean, and, and I'm, uh, Vicksburg is, is somewhat rural also, and it hurt, it's hard to attract nurses to the rural parts of the state because they're going to get better pay in your bigger cities, and I don't know how we address that. There may have to be some way to look at that. The legislatures may have to may have to say, you know, uh, let's try to get these nurses out into our rural communities. There's people that live out there. You, they need health care, too. They can't all come to Jackson to get their health care. Anything else you'd like to share with Mississippians before we go today? Just try to stay healthy and go get your booster and your vaccine. 
Dr. Jerry Wylan is a Vicksburg pediatrician. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Money Talks. Then at 10, it's in legal terms. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. I'm Desiree Frazier. We'll see you tomorrow at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition. Have a great day.